and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, we look at Boris Johnson's do-or-die Brexit. Will the UK and the EU reach a compromise deal before the 31st of October? Plus, we discuss whether museums should care where their donations come from. And finally, we ask, would you eat a roasted insect? In the first full week of his premiership, Boris Johnson has increased no-deal spending, toured the United Kingdom to demonstrate his dedication to the Union, and gathered his no-deal war cabinet for its first meetings. But even if the EU believes that Johnson is serious in his no-deal threat, it might still not budge on the backstop, or so James Forsyth argues in this week's cover piece. Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, speaks to James on the podcast together with Agata gostinska Jakubowska a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform, who joins us from Brussels. James, tell us about the game of chicken that Boris Johnson appears to be playing with the EU. I think Boris Johnson is playing multiple games of chicken at the moment. The first one, which he has to... Before he can even get to play a game of chicken with the EU, he has to succeed in playing a game of chicken with his own parliament. He essentially has to show that when parliament returns in September for that pre-party conference short session of a couple of weeks, that he can get through that period without Parliament either bringing him down in a vote of no confidence or successfully managing to find a way to bind his hands and force the government to request an extension to try and avoid a no-deal Brexit. If he can do that, he believes, and he he really does believe this, he believes that if he can turn up and say to the EU, look, I am serious about no-deal, getting my country ready for this, are you prepared to compromise to avoid no deal? He thinks that in that instance, the EU will say, OK, let's talk about this. Let's find a way to avoid a no deal Brexit. Agatha, how has Brussels reacted this week to the news that Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister, but also the Brexit strategy he appears to be unveiling? Well, I think that the change of guards in number 10 does not really affect the EU's negotiating objectives, neither its strategy. And it seems to me that if Boris Johnson really believes that, as uh, James was saying, he shows that the UK is extremely serious about no deal, that the EU will blink, I think, you know, he's, he's probably wrong. Do you think that Brussels' EU leaders believe that Boris Johnson would actually be willing to go through with no deal? Well, I think, you know, no no deal has always been one of the options that the EU 27 has been basically keeping in mind. The EU has been preparing for, uh, for this outcome. It published and then adopted a numerous, you know, legislation which would help to offset the economic shocks, mainly for the EU 27. Indeed, the EU 27 wants the UK to live in an orderly fashion, but there are limits to what they can offer to the UK to facilitate that outcome. James, how is Boris Johnson preparing for the possibility of a no-deal Brexit? What preparations are underway? Because under Theresa May, you had Philip Hammond, who always seemed quite reluctant to to release too many funds. I I mean, there have been three big changes in terms of the way the government prepares for no deal. First of all, there are a whole series of new government structures, you know, daily meetings in number 10 designed to kind of push things through. And crucially, the, the cabinet secretary, Mark Sedwell, who previously had been, I think, I think it was fair to say, did not think no deal was likely to happen, 
now now has basically got on board with the new government's approach. And I think the, the, the result of that is the UK will be more ready on October 31st than it was on March 29th. The other big difference is the Treasury, which used to be very chary about releasing money for no-deal planning. You know, it used to always kind of query the business case for any spending on no-deal, has now essentially turned the taps on. It's basically Sajid Javid is saying to ministers, tell me what your department's needs and I'll write you the cheque. And, and then I think the other change is just a willingness to countenance telling the public and businesses what no-deal would mean. You know, under the May Hammond era and when Greg Clark was business secretary, there was a real reluctance to go into too much detail about no deal for fear of frightening the horses. Agatha, James has spoken about the preparations the Boris Johnson government is undergoing, which are in part to show Brussels that they are serious about the prospect. But I wondered, from your perspective, is the problem here that the EU actually doesn't mind if Boris Johnson goes for a no deal, even if they believe he is going to do that, they're not going to move? Well, as I as I previously said, obviously no deal is not a desirable outcome for the EU27, but there is actually very little the EU can do to stop Boris Johnson from taking the UK out of the EU without a, a deal. I think, you know, we really need to reiterate the fact that the withdrawal agreement looks the way it looks, not because Theresa May wasn't particularly, you know, wasn't particularly skillful negotiator, but because of the red lines that the Tory party set a while ago. And, you know, those three principles that the UK will be leaving, the EU single market will be leaving customs union, and at the same time is committed to making sure that no hardening of the border in Northern Ireland will take place. Those three principles are simply very, very difficult to reconcile. And this is why the EU27 and the British negotiators ended up with agreeing the text of, of the now contested uh, backstop in the withdrawal agreement. So, you know, if, if indeed Boris Johnson means what he says and he really expects the EU27 to ditch the backstop entirely, then I think it's probably uh, not going to happen. I think there's, there's two particular, I think, I think issues about the backstop, or, or three really. One is, I think that there is, there is an intellectual, there is a kind of logical inconsistency. That the, the point of the backstop is designed to prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland. If the backstop is what sinks the prospects of the UK leaving without a deal, it will essentially cause what it is designed to avoid. I, I think the second issue of it is, people talk about the backstop and the importance of it being needed to respect the Good Friday Agreement. I think there is a difficulty about the fact that the institutions created by the Good Friday Agreement have such a limited role in the backstop and how it is going to operate. I think, I think that, that is a, a, a complicating factor. Mm. Yeah, I, I, what I would what I would add then, you know, how it looks from uh, Brussels' perspective and from from the EU twenty seven, I think you know backstop is really there and it tends to be an insurance policy, and you know the EU twenty seven is not really crazy about the prospects of backstop kicking in uh, either. But I think you know the whole discussion sometimes is also being uh, misunderstood in the UK or the EU's. 
position is sometimes misunderstood in the UK. It is also very much about standing behind Dublin and sort of also sending the message across the EU member states, particularly smaller and newer, that if, you know, if they were in need, they can also expect similar solidarity from other member states. James, if, as Agatha suggests, Brussels refuses to play ball, Brussels does not blink, is there anything that can prevent Boris Johnson from taking the UK out of the EU at the end of October in this scenario without a deal? A Parliament? Well, when you run for all the options that Parliament has, I think probably the only one that is watertight from their perspective, I think, would be to at the very beginning of that September session of Parliament, no confidence in the government, and force a general election before October 31st. Now, obviously, there is a risk in that scenario for those people who do that, which is that Boris Johnson might come back from that election before October the 31st with a majority and a mandate. Mm. I mean, if I could just sort of jump in and perhaps add also one of the questions that the EU27 has been asking itself is, you know, will the UK request an extension? I think this is, this is the, the, the issue here, which is... The extension could only be requested by the, the government, not Parliament. It's, I mean, this, this is a Crown prerogative. And if Boris Johnson says, well, I'm just simply not requesting the extension, even if we are in a general election campaign, and even if we are going, you know, October the 31st is going to be before the general election has taken place, the view in number 10 is simply that the legal default is that the UK leaves without a deal because they're not going to request an extension. The EU can't unilaterally grant the extension, the UK an extension that the UK government has not requested. Absolutely, absolutely. But then on the other hand, there are also some constitutionalists uh, in the UK who have been actually arguing that even you know, by failing to act, the British government would be in violation of the conventions arguing that no government can take any action which could bind the hands of the of the future of the future government. So I think you know, for us, uh, all of us working on on also sort of British parliamentary practice, these are extremely interesting times indeed. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the problem is that the about no government during election campaign, you can't do anything that's going to bind your successor. It kind of cuts both ways because both to request an extension and not to request an extension has an impact upon the government that would follow you. I mean, I mean, the one, one thing we can say for certain is that this is going to end up in a court and some QCs are going to get, uh, some QCs will definitely, definitely be buying a new European holiday home off the back of this one. Uh, one of the scenarios we haven't really explored in today's podcast is that perhaps actually Boris Johnson might be willing to put, as some say in the UK, a lipstick on a pig, right? And sort of ask the EU for certain additional interpretations and protocols to make the, the withdrawal agreement look more plausible and he might try to push it through Parliament. I personally find this scenario unlikely, but if he was willing to engage in constructive negotiations and, and with the idea that there are some limited rooms for manoeuvre, then I think the UK, the EU, as it actually repeated on several occasions, would be willing to revise the text of the political declaration which obviously sets the framework for the future relationship, might be perhaps also open to talk about the idea of extending trans 
transitional period. But again, you know, the question is, would it be acceptable in the UK? Since many would argue that this is actually turning UK in a vassal, in a vassal state. But if you ask me whether the EU27 will scrap ditch, abandon uh, backstop entirely, then I think it's, uh, it's rather unlikely. So indeed, if you analyze you know, what Boris Johnson has been saying in the last couple of weeks and EU's response, then I think no deal scenario is indeed a serious possibility. Final question to you, James. Uh, we heard there from Agatha talking about the possibilities of some form of compromise. Boris Johnson this week has been amping up the rhetoric on what he wants on Brexit. Uh, spoken about the undemocratic backstop. Can you see a way forward for a lipstick on a pig Brexit? I can see. I think, I, I think the first thing is, re- I think reopening the withdrawal agreement is the minimum that Boris Johnson requires. I also think it is worth noting that he is attacking the backstop for... There are two ways that you could criticise the backstop from from a UK perspective. One is that it is dividing up the UK. The other is that it doesn't give Northern Ireland a role in determining whether it wishes to align with the EU or Great Britain on various issues. And I think if you sent that those decisions to Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland will probably, as Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP's chief whip at Westminster, as, as, as it kind of fairly strongly hinted, choose to align with EU rules on you know agriculture, animal and plant health, all those kind of SBS issues. But then might choose to align with the U- with GB on, on other issues. I think that I think that is the most likely way I can see through this which but the obvious problem with my argument is that the devolved institutions in northern ireland are in abeyance you probably need to, for this to work you probably need those to be up and running so that you can say that is how this is all going to be determined that was james katie anagata next what should arts institutions do about donations they've received from dubious donors like bp or the sackler family In the magazine this week, Lionel Shriver argues that it's better to take the money and run, no matter where it might have come from. On the podcast, I'm joined by Chris Garrard, co-director of Culture Unstained, an organisation that aims to end fossil fuel sponsorship of cultural institutions, and Claire Fox, director of the Academy of Ideas and an MEP for the Brexit Party. Chris, can you start by telling listeners about your organisation and the work that it does? Yeah, so I'm co-director of Culture Unstained and we're a both a campaigning and a research organisation. And our primary focus is around ending fossil fuel funding of cultural institutions. But in order to do that, we work with people in the wider cultural sector. We engage with them about how can they fundraise and sustain their work in an ethical way and and really kind of strengthen their ethical guidelines so that we really protect the public's trust in our, our cultural institutions. Claire, what do you make of this sort of activism? I'm a great fan of activism. I'm actually very nervous, though, about the cultural turn in relation to wanting only clean money. I'm nervous that arts organisations are going to become bereft of funders. And I think it becomes quite difficult in a kind of sense of morals and ethics for me to decide whose money is clean. I mean, you've got a particular issue, Chris, and I understand this with fossil fuels, but I mean, who's going to keep deciding which corporate should sponsor? You'll know that there's been a whole range of anti-corporate sponsorship in the arts that's got nothing to do with fossil fuels. So 
if anything, there's a kind of contagion, which is that we can only have pure money. And to me, money is useful if you do something good with it. And I don't care where it came from. Lionel Shriver discusses this in her column this week. Chris, do you think there is such a thing as clean money? I think there is a a kind of broad ethical spectrum. I think the distinction we have to make is with corporate sponsorship, it is transactional. If it is transactional, something is being given away from the cultural institution when they accept a sponsorship deal. It's, It's not just coming out of the goodness of the hearts of whatever company it might be. So we then have a responsibility to to hold those institutions to account and scrutinise, is it the reputation? Is it the standing? Is it the integrity of somewhere like the British Museum that is being eroded and impinged upon in some way? Um, the, the point where I, I do agree with Claire is that I think there is a distinction between particular donors and particular corporate sponsors. And I think we we can distinguish between this idea that there's some sort of big anti-corporate sponsorship push and those people that want to articulate that we we draw an ethical red line and, and we make those ethical judgments in a whole range of areas of life and work and so on. And so to me, it just seems natural that we should extend that to the kind of ethical decisions we make in cultural institutions around how we fundraise that work. Claire, to flip the question around slightly, do you think there's such a thing as dirty money that organisations like public galleries shouldn't accept? No, if they don't interfere in the work of the galleries. I mean, I've no doubt that their motives are not entirely always philanthropic and they might want to do it to enhance their reputation. But as long as the art galleries are taking the money without it interfering in the kind of collections they put on or the kind of artwork that's produced or shown, then it seems to me that one should be pragmatic about that. And I think that, Chris, you can make those distinctions, but the reason I'm saying is that these are legal companies. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we kind of money launder illegal money. I'm talking about legal corporations who people for political reasons might not agree with. You end up in a situation of competing for who is the most kind of malevolent corporate and depending on which campaign group you happen to wander into. Now if arts institutions are going to be victims of the latest fashionable kind of woke or ethical decisions by campaigners, I think that's going to actually make them compromised in terms of their reputation because they're actually just singing to the tune of campaigners. You say, don't take the money from them, do what we tell you to do. Actually, ironically, BP don't tell institutions what to do with the money. They sponsor those institutions. No doubt it enhances their reputation. But as I say, I want arts institutions to be free and open to as many people as possible. I don't think that the state are going to fund that entirely. I have known for a long time that arts have had to receive money from very rich individual donors, all corporates, in order to survive. I'm more than happy with that. And Lionel Shriver draws our attention to the politicisation of the arts through actually these interventions rather than the sponsorship. I think the idea that the arts are only now being politicised is is a really kind of strange and outlying idea to me, actually, because the arts are about values and born of values, and so are the cultural institutions. And the trend we're seeing in the cultural sector is a recognition that these institutions are not neutral and never have been. And so what artists, the likes of Mark Rylance, Achtef Swaif, a former trustee and a best-selling author of the British Museum, she recently resigned from the British Museum because of this sense that it wasn't being open to the debate and the conversation around these issues. And when we see very clearly that there are particular issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's human rights and so on, 
I mean, I'm not sure the question of legality really comes into it if the values of the company don't align with the cultural institution. And this isn't sort of a new idea. This is something which is laid out in the Code of Ethics of the Museums Association. And actually, the idea that you should just take the money and run is, is actually quite removed from what the thinking within the cultural sector is. I think that's actually accurate because I think the cultural sector itself has become increasingly defensive and anxious and worries about some of these political issues in a way that I don't think is helpful. I think that Mark Rylance can resign, but ultimately my campaign would be to have Shakespeare for more people and that needs funding. And it's fine for Mark Rylance to kind of go off and say, I'm not going to do that anymore, but that's not going to help introduce the wonders of that great dramatist to more and more people. I think that when you say within those cultural institutions they have to make decisions and red lines have to be drawn, for example, at the moment the British Museum is resisting the constant campaigning that it's getting to stop having BP funding. So it's not exactly a straightforward transaction. You know, in that instance, they're under pressure. What has been concerning about that is that the chairman of the British Museum was on BBC Radio 4 the other night defending BP's business and, and suggesting that it's not invested in the tar sands, one of the most polluting fossil fuels, that it pays its taxes. Those two things were actually inaccurate. Yeah. BP is invested so in the tar sands. So what's interesting here is... That and you- so what we're seeing is those cultural institutions are upholding a particular system and what these other people are doing are demanding a kind of accountability. So what is the purpose of the British Museum? It's to display the great artefacts of hundreds of years, thousands of years in fact. But the thing is, is that what you seem to be objecting to is... Presumably, if they were saying things that you agreed with, you wouldn't object to them going on Radio 4 and talking about what they think about BP, as long as it fitted in with your political outlook. You're actually now saying, well, I they were inaccurate. I object to them saying something inaccurate yeah, on well, Radio I mean, 4 I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, and, and it gives that sense... But that look, the... it's not up to activists to fact-check every time anyone from... it. This is what I mean, is, is that, ironically, you are interfering... Now, if you're going to be a fact-checking organisation, at least admit that that's what you are, right? And then that's fine. But you're actually trying to stop the British Museum from taking that sponsorship. You say you want to open up debate, but in fact, when somebody joins in the debate and you don't like their arguments, you then jump in and say this is breaking an ethical code. I'm suggesting that the BP's support for the British Museum has been absolutely magnificently important, not for BP but for anybody who goes to the British Museum, to allow the British Museum, to allow ordinary kids, families, people from all around the world to see these great artefacts. And without an alternative, all that you are doing is actually forcing them to stop taking money that will just mean you don't have as many good exhibitions. That's all that happens. Chris, if your if your campaign succeeds and BP do stop giving money to the British Museum, what kind of company would you like to see sponsoring the British Museum instead? Because obviously they have to have quite a lot of money to be able to do it. Who would you like to see doing it? I think there are potentially a range of companies out there. I mean... The, Big Pharma? Well, again, the decision ultimately comes back to the cultural institution. <laughs> and, and my concern with the British Museum and the National Portrait Gallery and others is that there is a real lack of ethical substance in those policies. And there should be a clear understanding of what the stance and role of the institution sure, so is who, who, in society. What kind of company would, would, be, would fit with the bill? But like I say, I don't that, think that is for me to determine. I think that's for the institution. But you won't as let long them. As they're, no, no. As long as they are doing that within the basis of what their values are. But say their values... You know, but who's deciding values. their values? What's interesting for me is, is that the people who run the British Museum in this instance feel happy that their values are 
are not compromised by this sponsorship, but you won't accept that. You say, or you want to encourage people in arts institutions to consider what their values are. Then you tell them that they've got the wrong values, that they won't remember climate change. Somebody else will say the Sackler family can't support the Sackler wing, can't make donations. That's to do with drugs. Then you might have somebody else. That's why I use the example of Big Pharma. When I have debates with people about what is clean money, depending on which campaign group I happen to talk to, there are people who will just say, no corporate money works. You know, what about big banks? Then we think about the financial crisis. Then we, and by the time you have finished, there is nowhere to run. I also think that taxpayers' money, which also is what gets given to you by the state for your arts institution, is paid taxes come from big corporates right so the thing is there is no magic money tree and what will happen is is that my view is it's unethical that you are going to cut off a valuable part of arts funding for nothing more than making people feel as though they're doing the right thing this won't stop climate change tax is about a contract with the people that's entirely different sponsorship and corporate sponsorship deals are transactional and the association BP has with the British Museum it confers a kind of respectability and a trust on that company but secondly the company uses the museum as a space in which to meet with members of governments and to lobby and those business plans run counter to the Paris Climate Accord. Now, that's that's not something far-fetched. That's something that's been signed up to and agreed to by governments. And so the British Museum is lending legitimacy to it. So the idea that it's, it's somehow just some kind of loose endorsement, that there is something very tangible, and museums recognise that their reputation is an asset as much as its collection as well. Thank you, Chris and Claire. And now, for a short break, our resident poetry fanatic, Joe Bond, is back with another poem from The Spectator's Pages. Second Opinion by Rebecca Farmer Don't think I haven't thought I might consult the gods instead of a physician. I could still make a model of my spine to offer at the sacred shrine on the holy lake. Already I have a design for my sciatic nerve in wax. Don't think I couldn't will myself to sleep on a temple floor while snakes slithered across my back and healing dogs licked each vertebrate awake before the priest came to interpret my dreams and divine a curative. Don't think this doesn't seem a viable alternative to letting a man I've only just met cover my face while I count myself to sleep when another masked man will take his knife and put it in my back. And finally, are insects the newest superfood? Proponents say that insects are a much greener source of protein and Barclays Bank estimates that the market for edible grub could be worth $30 billion by 2030. But Cassandra Coburn isn't convinced and writes about the shortfalls of the diet in this week's magazine. She joins me now along with Shami Radia, the co-founder of Eat Grub, the company that makes Sainsbury's barbecue-flavoured roasted crickets. So Shami, can you start by telling listeners what exactly your company does? So we champion insects for the nutritious, delicious and sustainable protein or food source that they are. Our mission is to really normalise the eating of insects in the West, the way it's kind of normalised, you know, throughout the world. And why isn't it normal in the West to eat insects? I mean, there's different reasons, you know. I think, you know, culturally, you know, one of the main reasons is climate. So obviously in the West we have a cooler climate. Insects aren't in as much of an abundance as they are in hotter climates, so... 
traditionally when insects have been part of our diet for a long time you know throughout human evolution and the whole thing is about the energy consumption that's needed to catch food and obviously if they're in abundance it's a lot easier so you're not expending a lot of energy whereas if they're not in abundance and you're wasting more energy than what you're getting back from them. Cassandra one of the arguments for eating insects is that they're more environmentally friendly than traditional meat but your piece this week is slightly skeptical of that argument can you take us through why you're skeptical? I'm skeptical because of some of the science. (laughs) There's no question about it that per gram, it does cost less environmentally to produce a a gram of insect protein versus, for example, a gram of beef or chicken. But that's looking at a very top level. So one of the issues that you have, you know, Shami just talked about producing insects in the global north, which is, say, Europe and, and America. But actually the conditions in which insects thrive and the reason why they're not eaten more here is because they thrive in warm moist climates so to kind of replicate those environments you actually have to pump quite a lot of energy into the production of the insects to create that environment and the other issue of course is what you feed the insects so current laws dictate that they need to be fed if they're going to be eaten by us they have to be fed something that would be completely acceptable to be introduced into the human food chain So at the moment, I think, I don't know what you guys feed your crickets on, but I think normally it's very high quality chicken feed. So if you're feeding quite high quality chicken feed, the question is, why not kind of eat chickens where we've got all of the infrastructure and so on already set up? Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, you know, there's a couple of points, you know, in response to that. So. You know, we've we've visited a lot of farms and we in fact we actually tried to set up the UK's first cricket farm ourselves. We didn't have the expertise, you know, that's not our background, so it didn't work, but we actually got it quite far and I think it's really important to note that the rearing of insects or insect farming is in its infancy as an industry and there's a lot of statistics out there. Most of them come from the UNFAO, yeah. um, which was a report done, I think, in 2013, and then it was re-released. And it was done by respected scientists. And all the stats and facts that they use are essentially what insects could produce in terms of the resources that they you know, the input. So it's not the current stats, and I, I agree there's probably quite a lot of work to be done, but it's going that way. In terms of the energy or the kind of the heat, they are being farmed in, in the West at the moment, but actually insects, they produce a lot of heat when they're reared in close environments. And when we were doing it in the UK over the summer months and even well into kind of autumn, they required no heat whatsoever, even if it's a cooler climate because they were kind of generating enough heat to sustain that. And what do you feed them on? So they feed on a mixture of grains and veg. So we use potato skins and also carrots as well. So different farms use different methods and I'm sure some farms use chicken feed but most of the farms that we've worked with in the past have either kind of made their own feed which is a mixture of anything from corn to soy to kind of grains and veg but again the industry is in its infancy so it's learning on what the best feeds are and also the legislation at the moment is written in a way you know off the back of the BSE crisis which you know was quoted in the article but legislation is always changing so you know what it is now and the kind of the, 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 the kind of statistics that we're seeing now can always be improved on and you know what we're kind of saying is that because the industry is in its infancy we're innovating and you know you don't want to stop right now just because it doesn't quite stack up so I just just to respond to some, some of those things, one of the issues around using grain to feed insects, of course, is that's already what we use to feed 
current livestock. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's where a large proportion of the footprint comes from. So if you look at the amount of grain that we produce and all the associated environmental harms of producing grain, which is to say land use change, deforestation and so on, you know, I feel like feeding insects the same food that we're currently feeding cattle doesn't... it's not a it's not a clean cut mitigation. Sure, you know? I mean crickets are a lot more efficient than cattle, but obviously you know at the moment it's because of legislation, but also consumer perception as well. So insects, as you say, can pretty much feed or convert any foods into energy. You know even waste. But obviously when we're trying to kind of change perception, as well as obviously the legislation that we have, it, it needs at the moment grains are being used, but that's not necessarily to say that that they they will always be used. Shami, you've brought in some eat grub items here. Can you take us through what we've got in front of us? So we've we've always seen it as a bit of a consumer journey because, you know, we understand that a lot of the reactions we get from consumers in the West is squeamishness. It's still a bit of a taboo to eat insects as it was raw fish when sushi was first introduced. So, you know, we use crickets in a powdered form within bars, so energy and protein bars. So you get all the benefits of eating insects without actually seeing them. And then we also have all the whole roasted crickets as well, which are kind of, you know, mimicking the way they're traditionally eaten. Are these whole crickets? They're whole crickets, yeah. And, you know, traditionally they had as an appetizer in countries where they're traditionally eaten with a what kind, of countries are, what kind of countries are they traditionally? So, so, I mean, you know, throughout crickets themselves, are mostly Southeast Asia, but throughout Africa, you know, uh, the first time I actually tried insects, I used to work for WaterAid, their charity, and I used to collect stories from for them. And it was in Malawi, and I tried termites for the first time. So um, every time the rainy season starts, flying ants come out and they're collected by the kids and then kind of dried and, you know, served as a snack. And I thought they were really tasty. But, I mean, throughout um, throughout the world, Mexico, they have grasshoppers, or they call them chapelines, the Mopani worm, you know, in southern Africa. Yeah, not not my favourite. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely an acquired taste, but it's a delicacy in, in those parts. Do you think people find it easier to eat dry insects rather than sort of more... Squishy, squishy yeah. things. I mean, you know, our cultural reference to insects are celebrity get me out of here, bush tucker trials, where generally the insects explode in your mouth. <laughs> uh, and obviously that's not a great look, but, you know, insects, the ones that we're, we we use and generally they're eating are crunchy. Cassandra, can I tempt you with a cricket? Of course, thank cricket? you. What, what kind of cricket is this? This is These the barbecue. De- domesticus there. Thank you very much. Hmm. And they've, you know, they've got a simple barbecue <laughs> flavouring on them. Yeah. Yeah. It tastes um, like crisps a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Some people say crisps, some people say, you know, like the pop chips, and we've heard other people compare them to pork crackling. So, I mean, you know, I think once you actually try them, we always see that look of surprise on people's face. That mm. Actually, they taste good if they're prepared in the right way, just mm. like, you know, any food. And I always kind of feel like I've been one of these people that if people are enjoying it throughout the world, there's no reason why we can't. And we should always try it. And these are obviously all snacks, but I mean, are insects something that you can actually cook with? Absolutely. And I think that's our end goal is really, you know, when we feel like insects are normalised within the West is when we see people cooking with them. And I think it's a bit of a journey to go on. But I think, you know, we're starting to see more restaurants taking it on. You know, we've worked with Oaxaca, Fat Duck and Bray serve them. There's quite a few within Europe now as well. Shami, just finally, for listeners who might want to try some peri-peri crunchy roasted crickets, where can where can people buy these? So the roasted crickets actually can be found in Sainsbury's. We're in mostly the Sainsbury's locals. We're on Ocado with our bars and also roasted crickets. We're in a lot of independent shops. And we've also got an online store as well, eatgrub.co.uk.
Thank you, Cassandra and Shami. And that's it for this week. If you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as a diary from former Defence Secretary Penny Mordaunt, who writes about getting fired by Boris Johnson, and there's also more from Julie Birchall and Paul Wood. And if you subscribe to the magazine at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, we'll even throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. Thank you.